Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Runs and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Runs and Shine at the Sawa. Zimbabwe's former vice president launches a new party. East African leaders prepare to meet in Tanzania and Angola begins its presidency of the UN Security Council. But first, that's the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Uganda's failed presidential challenger Amama Mbabazi has launched a petition challenging the win by President Yoweri Museveni last month, citing voter bribery and arrests. The petition was lodged at Uganda's Supreme Court in the capital Kampala. Museveni's closest rival opposition chief Kiza Besaje, arrested multiple times during the election, was reportedly blocked from making a similar petition. Prosecutors at the International Criminal Court have charged a Malian militant with war crimes over attacks on centuries-old shrines at the World Heritage Site of Timbuktu in 2012. Ahmad Al-Faki Al-Mahadi will be the first person to face a main war crimes charge for an attack on a global historic and cultural monument. ICC prosecutors say Faki was a leader of Ansardine, a mainly Turag group that captured Mali's northern desert together with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghrib and a third local group from early 2012 and 2013. East African community leaders are meeting in the northern Tanzanian town of Arusha for an annual summit. The heads of state of Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda and Burundi are to discuss new passports and whether or not to admit South Sudan to their regional bloc, but not the ongoing crisis in Burundi. Lucy Taylor reports. This is the first time that the East African heads of state have had the chance to meet in almost a year. And yet the biggest issue facing the region's stability is not even on the agenda. The official schedule makes no mention of the ongoing crisis in Burundi, despite a death toll of more than 400 and the United Nations warnings that nearly a quarter of a million people have now fled the country. It's not clear either whether the Burundian president himself will even attend this meeting. Last time he travelled to a foreign summit in May last year, he went home to an attempted coup. But even if it's not on the official schedule, the presidents who are here are bound to have at least some discussions about Burundi behind the scenes. Three independent experts appointed by the UN to investigate human rights violations in Burundi have met with senior officials in the capital, Bujumbura. The team is on a week-long mission to the country which has been experiencing political turmoil and violence following the president's decision to run for a third term last April. Hundreds have been killed and more than 200,000 citizens have fled to neighboring countries, DNPN reports. The experts said their aims include helping Burundi to ensure accountability for human rights violations and abuses, including by identifying alleged perpetrators. So far, they have met with the ministers responsible for human rights and foreign affairs, as well as the Minister of the Interior. They also plan to meet with the Human Rights National Commission, non-governmental organizations or NGOs, and other parties. And finally, votes are being counted in most of the U.S. states that participated in the Super Tuesday contest to choose Republican and Democratic presidential candidates. Exit polls indicate that the Republican Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton of the Democrats have taken a clear lead in their respective contests. U.S. networks projected Trump won six and Clinton seven states. Super Tuesday is the biggest single day of state-by-state contests to select party nominees for the November 8th election to succeed Democratic President Barack Obama. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time.
Thank you, Anne. It is exactly 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. East African community leaders are meeting in the in northern Tanzanian town of Arusha to decide on the admission of four countries into the regional body. As James Shemangula reports, the countries are the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Somalia, and South Sudan. The East African community headquartered in the northern Tanzanian town of Arusha has five member countries, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, and Kenya. Today, Wednesday, the 2nd of March, the heads of state from those countries are meeting at the East African headquarters in Arusha to decide whether or not to admit the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, South Sudan, and Somalia. Democratic Republic of Congo is in Central Africa. Somalia and Ethiopia are in the Horn of Africa, while South Sudan is in East Africa. Uganda's Minister of East African Community Affairs, Shemu Begaire, names some of the new countries that have applied to become members of the regional body. We have received applications from South Sudan and Somalia, but we have to go through a process of verification to ensure that they meet the criteria that we have set for anyone to join the community. We have issues like um, country to be uh, admitted into the community must have uh, geographical proximity to one of the partner states. It must have uh, good governance and um, respect for human rights and also it must have uh, economic uh, programs that are in consonance with what we have. Sudan had met the criteria but then when uh, hostilities broke out this was a setback. We were hoping that uh, they will soon agree and uh, have proper governance so that they can then have a final negotiation with us in order for them to join. For uh, Somalia we haven't even done the verification as yet because of the security situation in that country. So I don't think they are ready, ready to join the community. Tanzania's Minister for Constitutional Affairs and Justice, Harrison Mwakembe, has hinted that once the five member states of the East African community, namely Kenya, Uganda, Burundi, Rwanda, and Tanzania, make their final decision, the new countries, Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Somalia, and South Sudan that have applied for admission will definitely be admitted into the regional body. Our decision-making in the East African community is consensus. We sit down together and we come to conclusion. I'll be very comfortable as an East African, as a Tanzanian, to see Somalia and Southern Sudan improve their security situation. Abde Ali, a Kenyan official from the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, thinks that Somalia has improved its image in the eyes of the international community and that it deserves to be admitted into the East African community. Somalia is a bit okay, and now uh, they are somehow stable. There's African Union there, peacekeeping, and the Somali government is at least improving. That was Abdi Ali, a Kenyan official from the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Arusha, Tanzania, to attend the East African community meeting taking place today, Wednesday, the 2nd of March. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The woman once seen as a successor to Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe has launched an opposition party yesterday. Joyce Mujuru, ending months of speculation, announced herself as President of Zimbabwe People First. Mujuru is hoping to succeed where other opposition parties have failed in unseating the ruling ZANU-PF party in power since 1980. Shingai Nyoka has I have known only one political party since I joined the liberation struggle. I'm now outside that party and I will not go back. Joyce Mujuru emerged from an 18-month absence to unveil a new political party which will challenge ZANU-PF in the 2018 elections. Today we confirm our existence or the existence of a viable, homegrown, inclusive political party. 
in the front row, former senior members of ZANU-PF fired alongside her for allegedly trying to topple President Robert Mugabe. The party is fashioning itself as a new entity, promising to restore the aspirations from the 1970s War of Independence. That unjust system, ZANLA, ZIPRA, and the Zimbabwean masses fought against remains a noose around our necks as that system has stolen any hope for the people of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe people first is a dynamic party that embraces the future. But not everyone believes it can bring change. Until she was fired last year, Mujura had been a member of cabinet since 1980. She has been uh, the vice president for the past uh, for, for so many years. Now, I don't think she has got uh, something new to offer to, the, to Zimbabwe. Was what President Gabi is, that's all she also is. So the, I don't think there's any difference. Others believe that her liberation war credentials will bring the broad-based support from the politically powerful war veterans movement, a constituency that opposed Morgan Shangirai. That, that is going to work, to, to work very much in her favor because she commands a lot of respect from the ex-combatants. She, she's very nice, she's mature. I mean, people, they now need a change. People First says it's preparing for its inaugural convention to elect its leadership, vowing that its former ZANU-PF members will not return to the ruling party. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. UN-brokered peace talks for Syria have now been scheduled to begin in Switzerland on the 9th of March. The country has been ravaged by five, for five years by a civil war which has seen 250,000 people killed and forced more than 11 million to flee. Russia has continued to back the Syrian government but has initiated a ceasefire as our Moscow correspondent Jack Parrock reports from Moscow. There's a ceasefire for Syria, but it's looking fragile. Images of explosions continue to emerge in the country which has been entrenched in a bitter conflict for five years. A cessation of hostilities agreement between Russia and the US came into force on Saturday. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, says they're working hard towards peace for Syria. Resolving humanitarian problems and moving the restoration of the country destroyed by war is possible only through ensuring a sustainable ceasefire and beginning a real, inclusive, all-Syrian dialogue about the future of the country, which should be determined by the Syrians themselves without external interference. The Syrian opposition, supported by the United States, is accusing government forces supported by Russia of breaching the ceasefire agreement. Russia says mortars fired from across the Turkish border have injured a number of journalists in Syria. Russia insists there is no plan B to this ceasefire and that all efforts must be made to ensure its success. Russia has resumed its bombardments against what it says are terrorist targets. This is permitted under the ceasefire as the so-called Islamic State and the Al-Nusra Front, groups deemed to be terrorists by the UN, are not included. Andrei Trupkin is a senior lecturer at the Russian National Higher School of Economics. Before the Russian involvement in, in Syria, actually I haven't heard any suggestions about peace talks in the area. That's an indication. Now there is a faint glimmer of hope the ceasefire may hold in some manner. The UN is pressing ahead with peace talks. The UN's special envoy to Syria, Stefan de Mistura, says talks between the warring sides in Syria are now confirmed to start on March the 9th. Jack Parrick, Moscow. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa PO Box 913-103 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus 27 
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, Angola has begun its presidency of the UN Security Council with a push for the body to examine the role women play in conflict prevention and resolution in Africa. Ambassador Ismail Gaspar Martins also indicated that they will closely monitor the evolution of the peace agreement in South Sudan and its implementation as the council weighs up whether to impose an arms embargo on the country, a move that Russia to date has fiercely resisted. Show in Bryce Peace reports. Ambassador Martin says this month's council program will be Africa-centered, while the critical situation of South Sudan is expected to loom large, with the council president pointing to some positive signs on the ground. That gives us time to work more with South Sudanese, especially now that there is implementation of the uh, of the agreement signed uh, and uh, uh, the vice president is now in place the you know the situation in south sudan seems to be evolving for better maybe we would not be seen will not see the need for either for target sanctions or the arms embargo but that is coming sometime later. When it comes, we will judge according to the situation. The return of Vice President and Opposition Leader Riek Mashar to the capital, Juba, is reportedly imminent but has missed deadline after deadline. We pressed the Angolan permanent representative on the basis for his optimism given that fighting has yet to cease in the country. There is a step-by-step evolution towards a better position. That's what we hope and we will continue to work on this and send the message, not just work from here at the UN but also from the African Union because, you know, IGAD is still working on it and uh, in the African, in the, you know, the Great Lakes we're also working on it and uh, apparently our messages are beginning to be taken seriously. And that's what I hope. But if you send a wrong message, say for instance, we are going to target Rick Mashar and, uh, uh, you know, Salva Kiir. He's wrong. Council will also focus on the prevention of conflicts in the Great Lakes region, which includes the DRC and Burundi, among others, and the role of women in conflict prevention in Africa. Ambassador Martins again. March is also Women's Month here at United Nations in different parts of the world. In our, at least in my country, in Angola, during the month of March, uh, the women are active, and women have played a very important role in uh, organizations, NGOs, non-government you know, organizations, uh, working as uh, uh, health uh, care, you know, in, uh, in social programs, uh, feeding programs, dealing with the children to avoid a situation whereby, as we see today, a young generation turned into, you know, supplier of terrorists. Angola will preside over the council when it adopts a landmark sanctions resolution later Wednesday, imposing stiff measures on North Korea for nuclear proliferation and ballistic missile violations of previous council resolutions. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. 
Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. Now, continuing drought in Southern Africa is forcing farmers into a crisis. Considered one of the worst droughts in decades, the dismal rain season accompanied by sustained record-breaking temperatures have dis- decimated livestock, made planting largely impossible and resulted in widespread crop failure. While this El Nino has brought drier conditions to southern Africa and wetter ones to East Africa, Ethiopia has also been hit by its worst drought in 30 years. Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions, together with South African Agricultural Industry Association, AgriSA, briefed the media on the state of the drought in the region yesterday. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Ismail Sunga, Chief Executive Officer at the Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions. Good morning, Ismail, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you. Good morning to you too, and to listeners. Now, Isma, what came out of the press briefing on the drought yesterday? Uh, the, the, the press briefing essentially was to try and uh, provide a farmer's perspective to, um, to the issue of drought. Um, we realized that um, most of the information and knowledge that was um, coming out, which, which was correct in any way, was um, generated by NGOs and other agencies, and uh, farmers had not yet spoken on the matter themselves. So essentially it was us lending support to what efforts have been done uh, in terms of research and confirming that indeed farmers are at the front line uh, of this catastrophe and that perhaps are the worst affected and that discuss the implications of, uh, of that in terms of immediate ascension as well as long-term uh, solutions. Now, Ismail, talk us through the effects of, drought, of the drought um, on the financially, financial viability of commercial farmers. There, there, there are two, as I mentioned, that um, farmers are at the forefront of, uh, of the problem. When the crop, there's crop failure, they are directly hit before it percolates to the other sectors, such as processors and consumers. So they, they, they essentially... Uh, lose um, not only the working capital they invested, they also lose uh, the other investment they made in terms of labor, uh, in, in terms of um, any other investment, fixed capital. The problem really is that um, there is an immediate impact, and then there is a follow-on impact. The issue that we may be confronted with in the very near future is uh, the inability of farmers to get prepared for the next season, particularly not knowing whether a similar occurrence would, would happen. And also the possibility that uh, banks, if it was financed by banks, may sue one their money back, and that could result in foreclosure of equipment, which further holds the capital base, working capital as well as fixed capital. So yes, there are two funds. There's the immediate one, then there's a follow-on knock-on effect, um, which then affects the productive capacity uh, for the next season and could actually become a worse season than this current one. Now, Ismail, should farmers or insurance companies or finance companies look at maybe um, having some sort of insurance or assurance for farmers in case of uh, another occurrence like this, like a drought? Um, this is not their doing. This is uh, nature. And, uh, you know, they they end up having the shortfall or t- ending up with the problems where, as you mentioned, that banks then would want their money back if they've borrowed money or loaned money from banks. Is there not, is there maybe a possibility of looking at having insurance for such occurrences going forward? 
the, the two or maybe more elements to it. One, this is a national crisis, and um, it is also a regional crisis. It's no longer a crisis that farmers are facing. It is a crisis of nations. So a national response, a regional response, becomes important. So it's no longer in the domain of farmers. So one would then um, argue very strongly that um, the national um, fiscals, as well as other instruments, should then be deployed to deal with the situation. And indeed, we are looking at issues such as how do you provide a fund? It could be a drought levy or a fund. That is now getting contributions from everyone because it is a national problem. It could be also a subsidization of interest. It could be a moratorium of, on interest rates. It could be uh, other measures that governments and the development community may put in place to try and prevent uh, banks, for instance, foreclosing uh, on farmers. So, so I, I think the main point is it should no longer be a problem of farmers alone. Talking of insurance, one would also argue very strongly for that matter that given its national and regional character, there is now need for governments to come and subsidize insurance or probably also embed insurance uh, facilities within, say, fertilizer purchases, within input purchases, within sales of all those kinds of things because it needs to be a collective effort. And, and um, banks, private sector, development sector, government sector, you name it, I think we are all in it. We no. should be in it Ismail, speaking of governments, the South African government is providing drought relief for mainly affected farmers and affected areas with regards to the drought. Now, do we know of any programs of this kind that have also been established in the other parts of the continent, the continent, the regions that have been affected? In general, yes, governments are willing and are doing all they can to provide drought relief. And they are mobilizing a lot of the money from the donor community. The main issue that we spoke about yesterday was, yes, drought relief is important, but the problem that may accompany it is that there could be a lot of food that will come in and may end up disrupting local markets and may distort uh, markets and uh, may distort price signals that may prevent farmers from investing in the future. So we're also calling for strong monitoring mechanisms to ensure that whatever relief is coming in the, in the form of food is not going to result in oversupply of the product, which then becomes damaging to the, uh, to, 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 to the economy in terms of preparing for the next season. The other part, really, is that um, relief efforts have mainly gone towards, maybe with the exception of, um, of South Africa, they've mainly gone towards the consumer side, but we don't hear enough talk about relief that is directed at reinstalling the eroded productive capacity. That is, that is a major problem. And related to that, we also um, are seeing a situation where we are much more in the relief mode, in the survival mode, in the keeping our heads above water mode which is fine for now, but in conjunction with that, we should be looking at long-term efforts to make agriculture more resilient, to make agriculture deal with any problems, climate-related or otherwise, into the future. I think that's what we need to be focusing on. We are too much consumed about the short-term issues of relief, too much consumed about the consumers only, and more to the detriment of putting together a bigger plan that locates agricultural development in the context of the fourth industrial revolution that is being talked about. And in Africa, we know that that industrial revolution is going to be agro-based. And we now need to think much more forward beyond surviving now to deal with the drought. Ismail, we have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thanks. That was Ismail Sunga, Chief Executive Officer at the Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions, joining us on the line from Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, 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 Africa.
It's 8.30 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, headlines East African Community Presidents are meeting in Arusha for the annual Great Lakes Summit. Prosecutors at the ICC have charged a Malian militant with war crimes over attacks on centuries-old shrines at the World Heritage Site of Timbuktu in 2012. And three years of conflict and displacement contribute to the dire food situation in the Central African Republic. Those are the stories making headlines. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Malawi is expected to face food shortage again during the next season if results of a first round of a crop estimate are to go by. This after the Malawi government finalized the first round of a 2015-2016 agriculture production estimate survey. George Mango reports from Lilongwe. The results show that the national maize production is projected at 2.77 million metric tons which is 2.0% lower than the 2014-2015 final round estimate of 2.78 million metric tons. Lilongwe says the first round estimate provide early warning signals on national food security, thereby advising policymakers to make informed decisions regarding the impending food situation. For major cash crops such as tobacco and cotton, the authorities further say the population of cattle has increased from 1 million 398,376 to 1,440,706, representing 3.1% increase as compared to the final round for the 2014-2015 agricultural season. Looking at these figures, leading seed companies in Malawi want government to come up with a policy that will champion the growth of early maturing crops. Happy Moyo is an official from Pana Seed. We are introducing another new variety which is pan 4M21. This variety is uh, it's a good variety. It's a, an area maturing variety. In fact, it does well in all regions of Malawi. Under all climate changes, it can withstand a bad climate whereby maybe the rains will come and go very early. It will also withstand that. Various commentators want government to champion climate smart and conservation agriculture to avoid such calamities. Joseph Mwale is an agricultural and media advocate. I think it's been long when we heard of conservative farming where you hear uh, people being told how to control issues to do with climate change. But I think the problem has been when you go in the villages, there are no extension workers that are supposed to work with the farmers, advising them on what to do. So we need more of extension workers so that when they go to the village, the farmers are actually kept in the know as to what procedures to follow so that Whatever they are farming, they have to yield at the same time fully knowing the effects of climate change. In view of climate change effects, an agent of poor harvest, food and agriculture organization says more has to be done so as to deal with the acute food shortage that has affected 15 out of the country's 28 districts. Malawian authorities are currently searching for maize from Tanzania and Zambia to feed 3 million people deemed hunger-stricken. Government has also cut its budget in the face of donor aid withdrawal and the sickening of the economic outlook for Malawi. 
An official from Food and Agriculture Organization, Aling Homer, recently said there is need for Lilongwe to consider doing climate smart agriculture. The Food and Agriculture Organization is uh, supporting government in the National Program for Climate Change, whereby we have been working with government to come up with a communication strategy on the climate change. At the same time, we are doing uh, land cover mapping to see how that might influence uh, climate and therefore design appropriate uh, responses to climate change. Statistics from government further show that the population of goats and pigs has also increased by 6.8% and 11.8% mainly. National fish production has increased from 120,894 metric tons to 149 299 metric tons, representing 23.5% increase. During a mid-term budget review in the capital city of Longwe, Finance Minister Guru Gondwe disclosed that the economy is not ticking, hence the idea to revise the financial plan backwards. George Mhango, Channel Africa, Lilongwe. South Africa's ruling ANC has defeated the DA's vote of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma in Parliament. The party has also vowed that no such motions will ever succeed in future. During the debate on the motion, DA leader Musi Maimani accused Zuma of selling the country out by putting his interests ahead of those of the country. Joseph Musia reports. The DA's motion never stood a realistic chance of succeeding given the numeric strength of the ANC in the National Assembly. In the end, only 99 voted in favor, while a massive 225 voted against. The motion came about after the events of December last year, when President Jacob Zuma fired then-Defense Minister Ntlantlanene and replaced him with ANC MP Des Van Royen. This saw the rent approach 20 rent to the U.S. dollar, while the stock exchange lost billions in value. My money called on ANC members to put the country first by letting Zuma go. He warned that if they didn't, they might suffer with him. Our duty today is to remove the man who's done so much to sell out our people. You owe it to your country to support this motion today. You owe it to the millions of South Africans who are tired of waiting and hoping for a better life. If you won't put South Africa first, at least put your party first. Because you know, as well as I do, that the longer Jacob Zuma is in office, the more support you will lose. Most opposition parties spoke in support of the motion. IFP leader Chief Mangosu Tubutelezi said the exercise seemed futile as the ANC has shown time and again that it will use its majority. Again and again, the ruling party has used its majority to shut down voices of opposition to protect the president and get his way. We saw it with the secrecy bill, we saw it with the issue on Kanza, we saw it with every motion of no confidence brought to this house. UDM leader Bantu Olomisa said since the constitution gives the ANC power to choose the president, they have a duty to ensure that he acts in the best interests of the country. It is therefore the duty of the ruling party to ensure that its candidate serves the nation with distinction and in accordance with the oath of office as prescribed in the constitution. If, as is the case now, their candidate is messing up with the country, the ruling party has a duty to the nation to act decisively in the interest of the country and its people. Stelo Mabika of the National Freedom Party told the House that since he came into office, President Jacob Zuma has brought tears to many South Africans. On the morning of the 9th of May 2009, it rained in Pretoria just before President Zuma assumed office for his first term. Many people saw it as a blessing. A good sign. Today we know that it was a warning of many tears which would, f- would flow during his two terms in office. Members of the ANC, on the other hand, went all out to defend their leader. Minister for Small Business Development, Lindiwe Zulu, defended the ANC record in government. This motion is frivolous because the evidence of progress under the ANC government is clear to all to see. As Statistics South Africa and the South African Institute of Race Relations confirms, the number of households residing in formal dwellings increased from 5.8 million in 1996 to about 12.4 million in 2014. The number of households using electricity increased from 5.2 million in 1996 to 14.1 million in 2014. The EFF did not take part in the debate. 
William Adisha of Cope was thrown out of the House for defying the Deputy Speaker, while Temba Godi of the African People's Convention opposed the motion. I am Joseph Musia in Parliament. The National Prosecuting Authority of South Africa, the NPA, says there was a political conspiracy in the prosecution of South African President Jacob Zuma with former Scorpions head Leonard McCarthy pushing the prosecutorial buttons. However, it conceded there is no evidence that former President Thabo Mbeki knew about the plot. The NPA will continue with arguments in the hearing on the DA's application for a review of the 2009 decision to drop corruption charges against President Zuma. The DA says the decision was irrational, but the NPA maintained it was too politically tainted to continue. Matlati Gallens was in court and filed this report. The Democratic Alliance was first arguing that former NPA head Mukote Dimshe's decision was impulsive and made in anger. The party's legal counsel told the court Dimshe took the decision a day after listening to the intercepted telephone recordings between former NPA head Bulelani Nguka and Scorpion's head Leonard McCarthy, referred to as the spy tapes. Part of the recordings include a conversation on when President Zuma must be charged and at stake leading the ANC. DA's legal counsel, Sean Rosenberg. That what appears from this is that the decision of Mr. Michel was an impulsive decision. It wasn't at that stage a reasoned decision. We would submit it wasn't at that stage a rational decision, backed by any reasons. It was a decision which reflected his own sense of betrayal and anger and outrage over the McCarthy conduct. The DA argued conspiracy around the timing of the indictment did not affect the weight of the case against President Jacob Zuma, nor would he be prejudiced. They suggested instead the timing suited him. Rosenberg says the decision to drop the charges was a corporate one and not based on the law. What he had to turn his mind to was the second question, which he never did. And the second question is, was this abuse of such a character? that in weighing up policy versus justice, one had had to conclude that this was such an egregious contravention of the rule of law or President Zuma's rights or fairness generally that it warranted the discontinuation of the prosecution. But the NPA disagreed, arguing that timing is everything. They argue political conspiracy on whether Zuma should have been charged before or after the ANC elective conference was irregular, represented serious abuse of prosecutorial processes and should not be minimized. They faced tough questions from the full panel of judges who wanted to know if the conspiracy went all the way to the top. Judge Lidwaba led the questions to NPA legal counsel Hilton Epstein. If reference is made of a meeting with Mr. Mbeki, it's different from saying that certain two parties were doing it to advantage him. Was he aware, was he involved? That's the nub of the question. If he was, where's the evidence to that effect? There's no suggestion and, it, and it's, there's no evidence that President Mbeki himself was conspiratorial in this prosecution. The point is that McCarthy and Nguka with or without the assistance of, um, uh, of President Mbeki, were proceeding with one agenda and one motive, and that was to try and ensure that President Mbeki was successful at Polikwane. So there's no evidence that President Mbeki was involved in this, but it's what McCarthy was doing. NPA has put all the blame on McCarthy. They blamed him for the decision to delay charging Zuma before the Polikwane conference. They argue he started manipulating the process in 2006 by leaking the Browsmore report that suggested that Angolan intelligence services plotted to support Zuma to ascend to the top post. The NPA also argued separation of powers. Epstein says the court has no jurisdiction to decide on charges being reinstated, but whether the decision was reasonable. If it should transpire that the court feels that Another decision would have been made by this court. It amounts to an interference in the discretion of the office bearer who was entitled to make this decision. 
The hearings have been set down for three days and are expected to continue till Thursday. The presidency released a statement ahead of the hearings saying the almost seven-year legal battle was an abuse of process by a political party to advance a political agenda. His legal team is expected to argue that the decision was rational and withstands scrutiny. in Pretoria. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoko. South Africa's Public Works Deputy Minister Jeremy Cronin says he is confident that Commercial Farmers Union Agri-SA will not succeed in its legal challenge to the constitutionality of the Land Expropriation Bill. Cronin presented the bill to the Select Committee on Economic and Business Development in Parliament. The National Assembly passed the bill last week. Agri-SA wants the definition of expropriation to be removed from the bill, saying various other legislation already defines expropriation. Cronin says the bill is solid. Our definition of expropriation literally follows letter for letter what uh, is, is contained in the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Obviously, AgriSA or any other uh, party is, is, is free to challenge uh, the bill once it becomes uh, enacted as law or free to challenge it in the Constitutional Court. We are very confident that uh, they have no case uh, in this respect, but if they want to waste their money, they are obviously entitled to do so. South African economists have advised to consumers to further tighten their belts as energy regulator NERSA granted power utility ESCOM half of its tariff increase request. The decision means that the average increase for ESCOM's standard tariff for customers is 9.4%. NERSA has told ESCOM that although it may be justified in the use of gas turbines, its maintenance of the cheaper coal options has not been well executed. Economist Grethel Motau says these are difficult times for consumers. We have to um, really, unfortunately, tighten the belt. NASA also decided, no, we're not going to grant you um, a full portion that you have applied for. The CEO of, of ESCOM yesterday uh, came out saying the amount that has been granted to ESCOM is not sufficient and it's going to impact on their business. 75% of the guarantees that government has issued to state-owned entities have been granted to ESCOM. Uganda plans to build an oil pipeline from its fields to the Tanzanian coast, a move that could strike a blow to Kenya's bid to have a pipeline running from Uganda through Kenyan oil fields to its coastline. The Ugandan presidency statement issued after Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni and his Tanzanian counterpart John Magufuli met on Tuesday did not mention the fate of the Kenyan oil export pipeline. Uganda, which has yet to start oil production, raised the possibility of a Tanzanian pipeline route last year. Botswana could sell its trouble the 600-megawatt Chinese-built power station after it suffered constant technical glitches since its launch in 2012. Botswana's Murupule B power station, built by the China National Electric Equipment Corporation at a cost of 970 million U.S. dollars, has often broken down, leading to reliance on diesel generators and imports from South Africa. The Ministry of Mineral and Energy and Water Resources says that there has been inquiries from two or three interested buyers, but no deal has been reached yet. The U.S. dollar is steady against a basket of currencies in Asia. Encouraging U.S. factory and construction data offered hope the economy was raining momentum. That helped U.S. stocks stage their biggest one-day rise in a month and close at their highest since early January. The U.S. dollar, 15.74 in South Africa, 11.25 in Botswana, 11.34 in Zambia, 7.1 British pound, 9.1 euro, gold, 1,227 dollars, platinum, 9.34 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil, 36.68 dollars, 6, cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figuilin Ngwati.
What's up, Dave? This hour we're serving off with tennis news. The annual Davis Cup is upon us again. South Africa will take on Luxembourg at the Irene Country Club in Centurion from Friday at 10 a.m. Central African time. South African tennis often produces world-class juniors, but very few kick on to become a successful professionals. This year, the South African team is led by Marcos Ondriska, who says he's pleased to be the captain of a young team. I think that there is pressure. Uh, I'm trying to help these guys understand that you know it's more of a long-term thing that we're trying to build over here you know um, I'm, I'm confident these guys they're a very talented group of young kids over here I think it starts at the top really I think that if this Davis Cup team does really well and the players individually start doing really well then I think that tennis become more prominent here in the forefront and in the media uh, and, and the kids will see that and I think that brings a natural sort of uh, attraction to the sport and in football news, preparations for the Africa Cup of Nations next year in Gabon have intensified in earnest. Gabon President Ali Bongo has made a presentation on the state of readiness for the stadia that are being built in five provinces to host the biennial African soccer spectacle. Gabonese FIFA agent Claude Bede Diguela explains. I'll say uh, everything is all right for now and everything is going very well until yesterday. The president made a presentation on um, on the stadium they're still busy with. I think there is no nothing wrong as, as a, a government concern for the preparation. Five provinces have been selected to play host to next year's Africa Cup of Nations, the AFCON finals in Gabon. Two new stadiums are being built from the scratch to host the eagerly anticipated event. President Bongo invited Argentine star and FC Barcelona's international Lionel Messi to replace, or to place rather, a block on the soil turning ceremony. Uh, this time it will be five, four provinces which will be hosting the AFCON. A new stadium are being built. One in Pojanti, the oil, capital oil of Gabon, and one in Oyem. In, in, in the, the, the north of, of Gabon. So two stadiums, two new stadiums are being built at the moment. But I think that they will reach the time. And in local football, South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundown stretched their APSA Premiership unbeaten run to 18 games with a 2-0 win over Tswane rival Supersport United at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in Pretoria. Sundowns survived the odd Navy moment but never really got out of second gear as goals from Asavel and Begile and Kamabilat stretched their lead atop the league standings to 10 points. Supersports kept Sundowns at bay in the early exchanges but Pizzo Musimane's troops soon found their rhythm and should have been at least a goal up before the half-hour mark. And in golf news, the two leading players in women's golf say they remain concerned about the Zika virus as they looked forward to their sport debuting at the Brazil Olympics this year. A growing number of international athletes in recent weeks have said they are concerned about Zika, a virus that has been linked in Brazil to more than 4,000 suspected cases of microcephaly, a rare condition that causes abnormally small heads in infants and can lead to developmental problems. South Korea's In B Park, who sits second in the rankings, spoke about her thoughts on the virus outbreak at the media event in Singapore. I think it's, it's great that, you know, the wom- the women's, first of all, is getting in the Olympics and the Olympics to be, you know, well, for both men and women to be back there. And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, every sport is different. Uh, you know, swimming is different to golf. Uh, golf is different to, you know, rugby or whatever. So I think every sport has its own special thing. So, you know, especially us, you know, all athletes, uh, you know, we're all proud to represent your country. So I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a great start. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a, I don't think there is a teams event this year, but maybe in the future, in the future generations, there might be a teams event as it starts growing and growing and growing. But I think there's always needs to be a start. And I think it's, it's going to be awesome to be in, in the first uh, Olympics uh, after it's all announced and all that. And the women's world number one golfer, Lydia Ko, the youngest golfer to become world number one when she topped the rankings last year at 17, 
didn't discuss a possible games pull out and a concerns were for the people in the 23 countries that and the territories in the Americas that have been hit by the virus. There is a little bit of worry at the back of our minds, but I'm pretty sure the LPGA and all tours and you know, the Olympic committees are going to do their best to try and handle it. And, you know, hopefully between that time, you know, the people who are currently in Brazil uh, don't get affected by it. I think we, we all trust, uh, you know, in, in all their actions. So. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Zimbabwe's former vice president launches a new party and East African leaders prepare to meet in Tanzania. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagaza and Tlantamasangu, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news, on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is DJ Bongs with a song titled Ofana Nawe.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa.